This is episode number 82 of Patrick Jones Baseball. On this episode, we have Jerry DeFlippo, who is currently a strength and conditioning coach out of New Jersey. He has his own facility called Challenger Strength. Um, we go over in this episode what it takes to decrease your 60-yard dash time, um, how to properly warm up, building a fundamental movement pattern, which includes training the frontal and transverse planes, lateral jump training. Um, we talk about, you know, should you lift heavy, light? What's it like to lift in season versus out of season? Um, Jerry actually trained under uh, Joe DeFranco, um, someone who is really wi- widely known and respected in the strength conditioning industry. And um, it should be a great episode for you guys. So appreciate everyone. If you haven't already, make sure to head on over to uh, iTunes and rate, leave a review. Um, that o- helps the overall rating of the show, and I would appreciate it. So without further ado, here is Jerry DeFlippo. We are now live with Gary DeFlippo. Did I say that right, the last part? Uh, Jerry, like a, say it like it's spelled with a J, but it's with a G. Uh, DeFlippo, yeah. Okay, awesome. All right, Jerry. So, or Gary, I, I keep messing it up. Um, can you give the listeners a little no bit of your background um, just in general? Yeah, no problem. Uh, so, basically, I have a facility in Wayne, New Jersey. It's northern New Jersey. Uh, I work with a lot of baseball and hockey players. I actually uh, am the strength coach for the Jersey Hitmen. It's uh, a hockey organization, youth up until junior level for Jersey. Uh, I've been doing this going on my third year now. Um, and I also work extensively with a lot of baseball players. I work um, with the Gamers Baseball Academy, and again, another place in North Jersey. And I also just signed on to do some work with the Caldwell University baseball team they're a d2 school um in north jersey as well and i've had my private gym going on my third year now uh i played college baseball myself i played two years at Aston college a small d3 school in massachusetts and then i played a year at Rutgers university Newark, another d3 school um i started getting my certification and you know getting into this entire uh, strength training thing my last year of college while I was finishing up at Rutgers Business School, so I kind of have the business background as well. And I basically specialize in speed and strength training for all athletes, but like I said, most specifically uh, baseball and hockey players, uh, a lot of rotational type of athletes. So, What are are some of the issues that you see um, when working with athletes? I think the one of the biggest things um, that I would say I see is, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, mobility restrictions with a lot of kids, um, especially a lot of the high school and college guys that I work with. And I mean, that's, that stuff's easy to fix. In my opinion, the, the mentality and the mindset of a lot of these guys have that like that they, they falsely have because of things that they've been told growing up in terms of how to train and, uh, the most effective way to, to get better, a lot of fear, heavy lifting, um, and, and not really understanding that you need the, the strength base of your training to really improve your speed. And if you put that together with the mobility work that I talked about, a lot of them kind of neglect, you can get results. They, a lot of them don't really understand that 
you need to, you know, improve your force producing ability and, and get stronger with the bar with other means to really get the results you're looking for. That speed is more than just, you know, moving your feet fast. That makes why, sense. Why is um why is like a anti rotational um like core stability I know you were talking about, why is that such an important thing um for baseball players to work on? All right. So basically the starts with the core itself obviously is the you know the base of all of our movements. Uh, the, to, to simplify it, the, the role of the core really is to stabilize uh, the spine while our extremities are moving. So obviously with a rotational movement especially, there's a lot of moving parts going on. And the tighter and stronger that core is, the better off and more efficient and powerful our rotational movements could be. And to get a little sciencey here, basically, uh, if you look at it in terms of there's something called tangent force. I've actually written some articles about it, and I can um, link that if you want to, you know, post it up or something. Basically, if you look at your hips, if you take your pelvis and you were to draw a straight line out from your belly button, right? Yep. You would call that line going straight out from your belly button is it creates like a right angle with your with your pelvis. It's tangent. It's called tangent force essentially, and that's what anterior core strength is, that anti-rotational strength is being able to be strong in your core and pretty much out in front of you. And the more strength you have anti-rotationally, you need to put more force into your body to start rotation. So basically what I'm trying to say is the stronger you are to resist rotation, the more strength you need and the more power you need to put in to start rotation. And as we know, the you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. The more you put into something, the more you get out of it. So the stronger your core is anti-rotationally, the more torque you need to put into, you need to get out of your body to start rotation, and that will come out of rotation as well. So it's really interesting that rotation itself becomes more powerful only because your body reacts and responds by saying, my core is stronger stable i need to put more into it to get rotation out of it if that makes sense so so essentially you need to be working on anti-rotational stuff just as much if not more than actual uh the rotational stuff yeah with a lot of my guys especially when we start out we won't even touch rotational movements until we have that really strong base of the core uh it's as simple as you know planks loaded carries we're very fond of over here especially because, you know, kind of simultaneously works the grip and the, you know, wrist strength at the same time and, you know, off-press variation, stuff like that. If you can really, you know, develop a strong ability to resist rotation, you're going to have to put that much more power into your rotational movements, which makes them more explosive uh, all around. How do you guys train uh, frontal and transverse planes? So... The biggest thing that I would say is, and I'll get into that in a second, but a lot of people or a lot of guys go, they, training frontal laterally and, and rotational obviously is very important for uh, a baseball player, but the biggest thing I would say to start is make sure you have the base of just straight up vertical power. And obviously when I say vertical, straight up into the air, like when you train a spot or a vertical jump, you're extending uh, straight up top and horizontal straight in front. Uh, what developed that base? The most important things that I've seen is you want to train those movements. Like, let's take the frontal plane, for example, which is 
to simplify lateral movement side to side. Uh, lateral movements are imperative in um, either a throw, you know, pitching a pitching windup or a swing, and you need to be able to obviously move explosively from side to side. So we've had a lot of success with uh, loading those movements. So on a strength day, we may perform, you know, a side lunge, that's also known as a caustic squat, uh, to develop strength in the lateral ranges of motion. We will do some frontal sled push variations where you're basically uh, chaining a guy to a heavier sled and having them push off their backside and transfer their energy laterally. And when you can put that together now on our power day, um, lateral jumps, just straight up lateral jumps. You can do um, lateral jumps combined with a regular box jump, get guys moving side to side, transferring their energy. And once you get that down, the rotational component of it, we basically would train them separately. So you have your lateral work in. I would have a guy, let's say, do his lateral jump work for the day. And then after that, we would do a strict rotational med ball slam, something of that nature, and then I like to combine the two of them. So in my mind, you separate the lateral movement, you separate the rotational, and then as the guy gets more advanced and builds that base, you can combine them together. So uh, um, taking your med ball throws and adding weight shifts, um, we find that a forward hop and a backward hop is great to cue weight shift in that frontal plane. So going back and forth side to side with the rotation. Um, basically, Take the two things, train them separately, and then once you have a good base of both, you put them together. How long of a process would that take for that for you to put them both together? It really depends case by case. I try not to live in absolutes, but um, if you if an athlete takes to it quickly and you know he exhibits good power with the with the lateral jumps and has a good base of strength, you can get to it right away. I would even say like. My, we're, we're getting towards the off-season now, so it's an appropriate thing to talk about. Um, even with the most advanced athlete, I'll separate them early in the off-season and let them kind of work on the two of them separately, and then we'll advance up the with the med ball throws to more complicated variations. So keep it purely rotational at first, and then let them slowly start to, and then you know, three, four, five weeks start to work back into the weight shift and the rotation together. I think a big problem, right, with strength and conditioning in general is just a lot of people don't know how hard to push athletes. You know what I mean? Like, and just in terms of like how you know, like how strenuous should it be? Like, how much you know should you push them? Push them till they you know damn near pass out. Like, how do you know like when to stop? That's a great question. I, I would honestly say the biggest problem is there's it's there's two completely different ends of the spectrum. You have the one side who doesn't want to do anything because they don't want to, let's say the guy that, or the player that's out there, um, you know, playing fall, summer, through the winter, spring, et cetera, and they don't want to push it too hard in the weight room. And then, like you said, you have the side that's, you know, going and going until they, they pass out during a, during a session. And the first thing to know is that you don't need to be out of breath and, you know, about to die for the, for the training to be effective, especially with a lot of the speed and the power work that we do. It's, it's really key to understand that you need that full recovery. If you're doing a 10-yard sprint, you know, you need that minute, minute and 20 seconds of rest in between because the only way it's effective, whether it's a med ball throw, a sprint, any kind of power training, you only get the true effect of it if you're able to perform it at your max capacity and you need to recover to do that. And a lot of people don't understand that, you know, hey, it's only a 
10 yard sprint. You see kids want to jump right back to their next sprint, but you have to rest, whether it's, you know, you're doing a speed sled push, a sprint, a med ball throw, a jump, whatever it is, you need that max rest in between so that your body is able to put that max power into the next set that you do. That's the only way it's going to yield results. Would that would so that apply? I, I would that apply also to like actually hitting? Right where you see guys, they take like six to eight swings, and then they, they'll take a break. And you see other guys, they'll do like fifteen to twenty, and then take like a fifteen second break, and then just go right back into it. Does that would that apply the same thing? Absolutely. So think about it this way: Why should you know? And it's even more so. It's even more exertion. Why should a a swing in the cage be any? Con- be perceived any differently than a rotational med ball throw. I agree. Right? Like it's this, it's this, it's the same idea, the same power. I would even say more power. Your adrenaline's going, you're, you're locked in, you know, on your results of how your swing's looking and you're exerting more in my opinion. And I think even from experience when I was, you know, playing college baseball, taking those really, really effective five to six swings and then taking, like you said, that break for a couple of minutes, you can put your all into the movement because at the end of the day, movement quality suffers once fatigue sets in. You know, you don't really – when are you going to be on a baseball field in the batter's box huffing and puffing? You're not. <laughs> if right. the sport was conducive to like, hey, you're going to run around the bases twice and then get in the batter's box, okay, maybe train for that. But <laughs> you're, you're in a sport where you're, it's one quality movement and then a, a long period of rest. It's ballistic movement. Ballistic meaning, you know, it's a – three second bout of energy and then you're if, if less than that and then you're you're back to resting again so why would i train in any manner that's different i understand you want to get repetitions but quality of the repetition is the most important thing no that i i completely agree and i think you just you see so much of that because of um you know just in the lesson thing where it's you know 30 minutes for for one kid one-on-one at a time and so it just hit 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 and so it makes you kind of wonder you know how much better are they getting yeah, like I, I can remember times back in my career, you're swinging, sweat stripping off you. I'm ripping blisters in my hands because I'm literally taking a swing every ten seconds. And next thing you know, you're rolling over balls, or just you're not putting quality reps in, and it's going to get you worse. You're going to set in bad habits. Um, I, I'd rather a guy take five quality swings in, in ten minutes. Well, it's a little excessive, but you know what I mean. Like five quality swings in a minute, talking in between, finding out what's going on, seeing how they're moving, then just swing, 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 swing you're gassed up and you're just not going to have the, the uh, energy to put quality reps together. Another thing in baseball that's huge, and I know, uh, I know you know a lot about this, is the 60-yard dash. And I know uh, a lot of people put yeah. a lot of stock into that. Um, I've always found it kind of weird because you never run 60 yards on a baseball field, but it is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts, first of all, just on the 60-yard dash in general? Well, the first thing I'm going to have to say is I think what, what I'm seeing at least is the stock that's put into it is only because it's still the test used in, in showcases and how coaches really evaluate athletes. And I think the, the coaches know it's not effective and the players know, but it's kind of just there, so we do it. Um, it's just it's, it's old habits set in, and it's kind of just like, hey, we got to do this. Um, and I think that's why it's just kind of accepted that, like, hey, you got to you know, have a good score on the test. And what I would say is there's, to simplify it the best, is there's two phases of a sprint. You have your acceleration phase, which is the first, you know, 15 yards or so uh, where you're on a, you know, a steep angle and you're, you're basically picking up speed. The mechanics are a little different. 
and then you have your top speed phase after those 15 yards where you know you've built yourself up to your your maximum speed level you're more uh, upright in your sprint and if you look at the 60 itself so now i said 15 yards right for um excuse me 15 yards for acceleration and then after that would be top speed so take you take your 15 yards off the 60 that's 45 yards of that test are in top speed right right that gives you I would say I think the, the percentage is about 75% of that test is a top speed. So it's basically a top speed test. That test is gauging how well you run at your top speed, right? Right. So let's take the stolen base. Once a player takes his lead, uh, what would you say, 8 to 10 feet from the bag, first base, roughly something like that? Yeah, I would say so. Generally. Um, and then you take the, the – the distance off from, you know, their, their head first or their, their head first slide into second, whatever it may be. You're really, even if you look at the base path as a maximum, it's 30 yards, 90 feet, 30 yards, right? Let's knock that down to about 25 yards now, based on the fact that, you know, you have your lead and you're sliding, et cetera. So now 15 of those 25 yards, when you take off, you're accelerating. So, if it takes the average, and this is these are some numbers that I've that I've seen um, in regards to some of the top base stealers in the major leagues. If you're taking 11 strides to get to second base, which is the average, seven of those are spent in acceleration. So seven of those are spent at a very steep angle, getting yourself going. You're only taking roughly three to four strides in a top upright position of top speed. So you're now testing athletes and players on a test that is going to measure how fast they run at their top speed when the longest we just broke it down, you're ever going to run in a linear straight ahead direction is about 25 yards. There's no position player. I don't really see outfielders. Maybe outfielders are the exception. They might run up to that 30 yard mark if the ball's straight over their head, but either way, no player on the field of play is going to run more than that 25 yards. Um, at a time in a, in a straight ahead direction, there's, there's change of direction, uh, rounding a base, you know, whatever it may be. It's just why use a test that's only going to measure the, you know, truly 75% of that test is how well I run after I've accelerated. It, it's, it's really ineffective. I want to know if I have a baseball player who runs a really, really fast 10 or 15 yard sprint, I'm going to know that, you know, Hey, this guy can steal some bases for me or he's going to be able to move well. Cause he, you know, really, picks up speed fast you know if that makes sense yeah yeah he, it he, definitely he, does so i mean do you still though even though you don't really agree with the test like most people do i mean how do you train guys for it because clearly there's a lot of people who still have to run it and have to run a good time if they want to get looks yeah so the biggest thing and this is this is actually really cool um how it works so let's just say you had a player the theoretical player who ran a seven flat in his 60 right okay and you tested his 10 yard sprint and you took his splits and you found that in his 10 yard he ran a 165 right the cool thing is that now obviously I'm, i just spent a couple minutes talking about how training acceleration is the most effective way to you know make a faster baseball player but we still want to train for this you know this test if you take that same player and you knock that 165 and in six to six months to a year, you get him down to a 1.5 on his 10, that's, you know, going to come straight off the 60. So the first thing is you can really train acceleration exclusively 
in the 10 to 15 yard range and take time off of the 60. So now that player is from a 165 to a low 15 on his 10. He's down to a, a 685 on his on his 60. So tell me a coach isn't going to look at a big difference between a seven and a six eight five. Getting under that seven is a pretty big magic number, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, no, 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 for sure. I was just so so. You're saying that you can essentially take off time from your 60 and not have to worry about um, anything more than 10, 15 yards at a time. Well, I'm saying if you like a couple of reasons. First of all, it's training efficiency, right? So. Yes, the test is important, but at the same time, you know, I also want my guys to do things that are conducive to, uh, you know, what's going to make them the best on the field of play. So that's the first reason. Secondly, space-wise, you see a lot of, and, and I'm a Northeast guy, so I kind of, you know, I'm a little biased, but we're very restricted in, in times of year. Like it's, you can't always get those 60 yards to go run and do top speed work. So my, my thing is, like, you can spend a lot of your, the bulk of your time in the 10 or 15 yards, take the time off of that 10 or 15 yard sprint that you're doing and that'll shave off the 60. And not only that, but the general strength and mobility work that you're doing anyway, you can literally not run for six months. If you're doing the right mobility and strength training, you'll see time come off right away just because you're, you know, you're more powerful and more explosive and you're more mobile. Now you add in the the short sprint work that I'm talking about and you could honestly take two, two to three tenths of a second off your 60 without ever doing any top speed work. Really? You're, you're yeah, so I have – I'll give you an example. I have an athlete. Uh, he's a uh, middle infielder at William & Mary, and he's probably one of the better athletes I've ever trained. Um, he actually just ran a, a hand-timed, I think, a, I believe a 6.38 during their testing week two weeks ago. Um, very explosive. And I have never – he came to me, I would say, at like a 6.6 six level, 6.7 level, and now he's down – I've had him for about two years. He's down to about a 6.4 we have never run a sprint longer than 15 yards. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. That's all because that's all we, you hear about you having to do is we, you know, running. We mastered his 10 yards. We got his start. Like I, You look at any I'm, – I'm very, um, very into tra- like studying track runners and applying the principles of how they start to, um, with my guys. So just because you're starting in that, you know, that baseball stance, that, that lateral position, doesn't mean those same principles don't apply. That same extension off your back leg um, and explosive that at your start is huge. That can make a difference of a tenth of a second just on that. Um, you know, we really got him to the point where, let's just say when he started with me, he was running 10 yards and six and a half strides. We got him down to five and a half. And doing so, and it was, you know, it took some time and everything, but you can – I had him down to a 1.44 laser time, 10 yard sprint. So like imagine getting a guy in at a one seven, you bring him down to a one five. You don't even have to touch a long distance sprint outside. Yeah. It'll help. If you have the luxury to do so mixing them in, you know, once a week, if you have two, if you have the luxury of having two speed days, do one day of acceleration work, one day of top speed work, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not saying you don't, advocating against it i'm just saying you can get results in the 60 and lower your time without ever touching uh the top speed sprints wow i think that's something that people don't understand yeah you can really shave a lot of the the time off so one of my biggest one of my mentors in the industry uh it's a guy named joe defranco i don't know if you ever heard of him i have um he's a you have yeah so he's his He's a pretty legendary uh, speed and strength guy. Works with a lot of football players. He's known as a, a 
guy that you go to, you get your 40 time down. And his whole backstory is, you know, he started out in this, you know, small storage closet and he couldn't even have kids run. He had no access to turf or anything. And kind of what I was saying, you know, just the proper strength and power training and the um, proper mobility work and guys were jumping out on the turf and their times were going down just because of that. Now you mix in, you know, his whole philosophy, and this is kind of what I preach as well, you know, minimizing the time and the strides and getting that time down on the 10, and it will directly come off of a 40 or a 60 or whatever that may be. Um, now, if you can sprinkle some top speed work on top of it, you have the space to do it. You have the um, right amount of sessions. It, it's all dependent. How many times a week um, do I have the athlete? How many times can he get to me? Oh, only two days? Then I might just have him do uh, acceleration work. Can he get to me four times? Great. Then I'll have him uh, 10-yard sprints on a Monday, and we'll go outside and do some uh, long sprint work on Thursday or Friday. It really depends. But you do not, you absolutely do not need to run top speed sprints to get your 60 down. You can get it down with just the acceleration work and just the strength training and the power training if you really want to, you know, maximize the efficiency of what you're doing. In an ideal world, if you, if, if an athlete came to you and said, <laughs> hey, maybe it's a summertime, maybe, you know, it's a pro player in the offseason, they said, like, hey, I will do whatever it takes. Like, if, if I need to be working out seven days a week, I, it doesn't matter. How many days a week like, do you think, ideally, athletes should work out if they don't have to worry about anything else so they can do you know, whatever they want? So I would say three is a magic number. Like I, I, have, I, I do get great results with them, some kids if I only have them for two. Three is a really good number. And when I, the type of training I do, and I'll explain what I mean by that, um, even if it's a guy at the highest level, like a pro with a really great, great nervous system, he recovers well. I still like more than four days and I'll explain why I just, I, I think you get into trouble. And what I mean by that is even with that pro level player, sometimes they need more rest because the more powerful you are, the more energy you exert. It's like, you know, you have that Ferrari sitting in your garage. If you hammer that thing every day, hour upon hour, it's going to take a beating. It's a high-performance-level vehicle. It's no different than a, than a high-level athlete. Like, that, that engine, it's explosive. It needs time to, you know, you've got to change the oil. You've got to do the right things to make sure it's running smoothly. You can then, on the other hand, take that Kia out, and you can run it into the ground. It's a hybrid. It's, it's got, you know, it could drive for days. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. yeah. There's two different ends of the spectrum. Um, and when I said, you know, my t style of training. So the way I program with a lot of my guys, you know, if you're on that four day a week, let's say someone told me, Hey, I have all the time in the world, Jerry, I can get to you. I have a full seven day week schedule that I can um, utilize. I say, okay, great. Let's do four days. And then let's have a fifth day where you're kind of giving that recovery, um, extra mobility work in. And the reason I say that is if I take that athlete, I have them on, let's say a Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday schedule, let's just say. And he now is going to be able to do two days of sprint work with me because I have him for four days. If he's really putting in maximum power output in his sprints and his jump training and everything on a Monday and a Thursday, he's going to need that two to three day window in between to fully rest. And if you don't get that rest in between, that speed work is not as effective. Like I'd rather you do that one speed day a week where you have your full utmost energy and, and capacity to you know, put your maximum power into that speed work, that's when it's going to be the most effective for you. 
So even if a guy can say, get, say to me, hey, I can be at you six days a week, it's going to be detrimental at that point. Give me those four days where you're able to put max into your strength work and your power work, and then we'll recover in between. And I think that is the most beneficial. Like, let's not, you said it in the beginning when we were speaking, you know, everyone has that whole mentality that I need to be, you know, like that Gatorade commercial. I got to be on the ground, sweat dripping off my forehead, you know, feeling like I'm dead for training to be effective. It's just not the case. The, the, the speed work that we're discussing is the most effective when you have the ability to put every bit of energy you have in between and you can recover to the max. You can get max recovery in between uh, your bouts and your days of training, in my opinion. So I would say even with an athlete that has the time to get to me, more than four days, if you want to add that fifth day, maybe for some like, you know, recovery work or, you know, a guy wants to use it to do some extra hypertrophy, like putting, they want to put some muscle on, great. But in terms of speed and strength training, four is really the max you would need. I, I really wouldn't go any further than that. What do you um, think about, about you being know, flexible, like flexibility in athletes, like those days they're not working out or even the days that they are, like how often should they be doing just like stretching and foam rolling? Like is, is there too much, not enough? Like what do you think about that? Well, I will tell you this. The first thing is that if I ever tell an athlete, like if I really want him to work four days a week, I tell them six because I assume that they're going to take about two days less than what I actually tell them to do. So if I were to tell them four, I would feel like they would only do two or three. So the, the little trick that I have is I'll tell the younger guys, you know, the high school kids that, you know, the old excuse, I don't have the time, you know, right. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. uh, <laughs> you get home from school at three o'clock, you don't have practice till seven, but they didn't have the time to, to roll out or they didn't have the time to stretch. So the first thing I would do is I overemphasize the importance of it. And I just assume that they're going to, you know, fail to meet those expectations and they're going to end up in that four day window, which is brings me nice segue to my, my answer to that. Um, I would say about four days a week is appropriate. Um, if it makes the guy feel better, I have a couple, couple players that just like feel like if they don't do it every day, that they're just not going to, um, benefit from it. That's fine. I don't really think you're going to, in my opinion, hurt yourself. Like if you're doing 20 second stretches every day, the every day of the week, I don't really think it's going to have a, an adverse effect, but I do think you need those three to four days um, every week at least to, one, offset the work that you're doing, so to make sure it's for recovery purposes and to keep your, you know, range of motion uh, at a level of what it needs to be. You need to at least be performing it those three to four days if you're training those days after your your uh, your sessions. with the, All my guys have a full body routine that they're going to do at the end of our sessions, and I think that um, the additional work on your off days for multiple reasons, the recovery, the blood flow, and you can, you know, if a guy has limited range of motion, uh, we talked about speed before, if their hip flexors are tight and, you know, it limits their stride uh, length producing ability, then, you know, hold that 30 second stretch can really create ranges of motion for you um, in those four days that you are stretching. So I at least say one day of mobility work per every day that you train. And then I like to throw an extra one on there uh, on an off day. What about a, like an, an assessment for each athlete? Like, do you take them through some sort of like assessment or screening or something like that to see like do they have to have any deficiencies or like, do you do anything like that? So when I first started out, you know, and I, I think this is kind of something you could see with a lot of trainers or coaches that they, you know, when they first start things out, they really, really try to go by the book, by the book. I had, you know, assessment sheets and uh, each player, or athlete that came to me would, would fill it out. And I would, you know, 
write down what they're what they're deficient in and all that kind of stuff. And I still I still keep that. Like I, I have an, uh, an Excel sheet um, for every guy that I have, and uh, there's some sections on there that I, I will list some um, you know things that they need to work on in terms of mobility and whatnot. But what I found is to really maximize the efficiency of a session, you know, and the time you have with the guy. And this is actually a great segue because I think we did say we want to talk about warm-ups at some point, so I can get into that, what the warm-up involves. But um, what I found was the best way to maximize the efficiency of a session, especially with a lot of groups if you're doing group training, um, to put an athlete, even on their first day with me, through a standard typical warm-up that we would perform every day before a session. And I just like to just let them do that warm up and just see, you know, what they're lacking or what they're having trouble with. Like, um, really simple example, you know, we're going through the warm up and I would tell a guy, Hey, uh, pop down. I want to get your hips activated and they would perform a fire hydrant. Basically you're, you're on all fours and you're, you're lifting your back leg, uh, out to the side. It's, it's a hip, um, external hip exercise. And I see that that guy can't really lift his leg up, you know, too high at all unless he has to like you know totally rotate his chest open so right away i'm saying hey hips are an issue um you know we go to do a uh, you know hey guys get the hip flexors loose you know knee have a knee pull into your chest you know walking down the turf and i see a guy can barely get his knee into his chest these are some things i'm going to look at i'm going to put them through that standard you know warm-up i'm going to have him do body weight squats i'm going to have him do a push-up and i'm going to just see like what are their tendencies um and a, and a really big thing that I, that I love that uh, Joe DeFranco discusses early on is you're, you're always assessing. So that kid walks in the door from the minute he walks in, I'm looking at where his shoulders are. Is he slumped over? Uh, are his feet pointing out to the sides? Like there are so many things that I can see and do and, and use to, to kind of like make notes and mental notes and um, jot these things down in terms of going in and fixing them in future sessions that don't involve, hey, sit here for 20 minutes and I'm going to have you do, you know, wall scap slides and uh, I'm going to, you know, test your hip rotation, internal and external. I can see these things. Just do our warm-up and I can see what you're lacking and what, you're, what you need to go forward. If you go to do our, you know, our body weight squats and our warm-up and your feet kick out and, you know, your, your chest is dropping when you're, you know, doing your squats, I can say, hey, you know, got to work on your, your thoracic spine, have to, you know, strengthen up your external rotators of your hips, all that kind of stuff. So I like to really treat it as, you know, every day they're doing that warm up. I can assess from day to day what's lacking, what needs to be improved, and I can make notes of it and we can go from there. So I've kind of, you know, taken the traditional, really, you know, elaborate assessment and I've pretty much turned it into, hey, do this everyday warm up that we do that has all the movements we're going to need and let's see what you look like. And we take that and we get our we get our kind of analysis from that. And then I have, you know, the guys do certain things. Hey, you need extra hip stretches. You need, uh, you know, a green band around your knees when you squat because we need to work on your hips, whatever it may be. Um, and I really like that in terms of efficiency. And, you know, it, it kind of just cleans up the process a bit. It makes it a little more easy to do. And um, I think in this, in the name of the game and the strength training is that can I – Again, I said I said efficient 30 times already. Can I really make this efficient and, and uh, something practical that every guy can do when they walk in the door, if that makes sense? It does. What what age would you say that, that kids should start doing some sort of strength training? 
So I'm a, for, I'm a huge believer in, in, you know, as soon as, like, I'll give you an example. I have a three-year-old nephew, and my, my sister has been great. She's had him involved in every single sport or class or whatever you may, you, you could say. And he's, he's like really, just really coordinated at his, at his age. And I think the most important thing is when you have a young kid, you know, in that three to four to five to six-year-old age range, let them just be exposed to as much as possible soccer, baseball, lacrosse, hockey, whatever it is, you know, at that age, our nervous system is the most responsive and most, you know, the easiest to be molded. Like they say, you know, it's easiest to learn a language when you're at a young age because your mind is like a sponge. Uh, your central nervous system works the same way. So, you know, I can, you know, see a youth athlete, I can see a difference. If that five-year-old has been playing four or five sports every week for his entire life, you can just tell in how he moves. So my first suggestion would be let them be exposed to as much as possible at a young age, as much variable movement, um, environment, stimulus, whatever you may, whatever uh, you can get them into, gymnastics. Um, my nephew actually likes to dance a lot. I feel like that's helped his coordination. And you can see it. And I think that's the biggest thing I would recommend. That. And the second thing is in terms of age to start strength training, which is always like a hot topic. Uh, um, you can really say now that the fear of, you know, stunting growth, affecting growth plates, it's really, it's diminished because people are understanding and there, you can literally go on Google and type into the search bar, you know, does that's lifting is lifting bad for young, young, young athletes. And you'll find article after article, um, basically kind of, you know, tearing down that old myth of, you know, hey, it's going to start your growth. It's going to be bad for you. And the biggest thing, in my opinion, and not even just my opinion, in, in a lot of these, you know, articles that I'm referring to that you can find, is that, you know, as long as there's a progression followed and form is, you know, emphasized and the things are done the right way, there's no reason that, a, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old can't, you know, do a, a goblet squat or a push up with, you know, a little resistance. There's no reason at all. And, you know, to the people that say, hey, I don't want my son doing that he's, or my daughter doing that, they're too young. Think of these kids, they're carrying 30 or 40 pound backpacks around and they're walking up downstairs at school every day. And you're going to tell me your son can't hold a 10 pound dumbbell and learn how to squat. That's like, a good point. It, it just, it blows my mind. It, it blows my mind. Like, you got these kids, look at everyday life, everyday movement. You know, your son's picking up something off the floor. He's got a, he's got a, a duffel bag he's bringing to, to school to change after school. It's 15 pounds. He's deadlifting it off the floor. So if I take, if I take your 10-year-old into the gym and, you know, I teach him, you know, bodyweight squats and, and push-ups and his form is perfect, if you progress it little by little and the form – what I mean by that is – if he does a push-up body, we get him, you know, to the point where he can do a really, really good push-up with perfect form. He could be 10 years old. There's no reason I can't add, like, a little bit of a band resistance to that. As long as the form stays in check with the resistance, it's like an X and Y correlation. You just go with up with one if the other follows. Um, and the other point that I wanted to make, too, was that uh, at that age, the most effective type of training is the strength work itself. So you're going to get a lot more out of teaching your, your nine or 10 year old or having them do, you know, five rep sets, developing strength. So obviously five reps and under is more, 
uh, geared towards strength. Having them do that type of strength work is going to benefit them, one, for movement quality, and they're going to be much more receptive to actually getting stronger than they are in terms of putting size on. Your 9- or 10-year-old is not going to have the ability to really make use of, you know, mass-building exercises. They just don't. They haven't gone through puberty yet um, or haven't even begun to, and they're not really going to get results from it. So your best bet at that age, especially if you're going to start, obviously, like I said, progression, form, and really work things that work strength, not uh, size. That's my, that's my take on it. This this kind of brings me into my next point and question um, when we talk about just kids in general and, and, and working out. Um, before the workout even starts, you know, you have the, the warm-up. And I see kids all the time just kind of get in. They just start just, whether it's just hitting or just lifting or, or whatever it is, no, no real warm-up or anything. Um, what's your take on, like, should kids warm up before they even hit? Or is it just before they lift and run? Like, what's your take on all that? I think warm-ups are necessary before anything that you do. And we said before, you know, we talked about rest periods when a guy's in the cage. And I said, how is that any different, you know, swinging a bat than it is throwing a med ball in the gym? It's the same idea. If I'm going to rest two minutes before I throw a med uh, or after I throw a med ball, so I should probably incorporate some kind of rest, you know, in my, in my, uh, my cage work, right? So same idea applies. You know, if I'm going to lift, I should get a warm-up. Or if I'm going to swing, I should get a warm-up in as well. And I think the biggest thing you see is that a lot of guys see warm, warming, warming up as like, hey, I'm going to you know, do some high knees and some uh, side shuffles, and I'll do a couple arm circles, and right, I'm ready to go. Um, what I, you know, what I really want to do, I'm going to go into some of the phases of a, of a warm-up, and I'll point out some of the biggest mistakes that people make. And the first one is, um, the first phase of a proper warm-up, you really want to think about blood flow, right? So I talked a lot about blood flow with recovery and how that, you know, stimulating movement of blood, it kind of a, uh, it can help, you know, muscles recover and all that. So you want to make sure when you're warming up, you know, you see guys take a jog or do, you know, something of that nature. Getting the blood warm is the most important thing because, as we know, stretching cold muscles, you're not, you don't want to do that. It's not really going to give you much effect. It can actually uh, be detrimental. So, First step of a warm-up, you know, get yourself moving. I have my guys do um, a jog, high knees, sh- side shuffles, any kind of movement, What you know, just to kind of get yourself going. Once you get that done, um, whatever athlete has a, you know, it's a case-by-case thing, hey, I might have, you know, chronic, you know, tight hamstrings, my upper back gets tight, whatever it may be, go through your mobile uh, mobilization work. So, Building off the examples that I was giving, I have my guys do, you know, their, their jogs, their high knees, side shuffles, et cetera, get the blood going. They may do some hamstring work, whether it's, a, you know, an inchworm, a Frankenstein, whatever it is. Uh, we're going to get the hip flexors going, et cetera. You see where I'm going here. Um, any type of area that you think is going to be important to the activity they're about to do. So if a guy's going to go into the cage, then I know his hips need to be ready, his upper back needs to be ready to go, shoulders, et cetera. So those are the areas I'm going to look for. Basically, target things that you think you'll need uh, with whatever workout game or, or scenario you're going to get into. From there, we go from, so you got blood flow, mobilization. From there, we go to what's called activation. So mobilization is, you know, lengthening the muscles and, and you know, hoping to uh, improve range of motion. Now I want to really activate so I want to wake those muscles up. 
So I've mobilized my hamstrings, my hip flexors, et cetera. Now I want to do some stuff that's going to really get them moving and get them going a little bit. So uh, if I stretched my hips out uh, in the mobilization phase, I, you know, I got my hip flexors stretched out or my, uh, my external rotators. Now I want to wake them up a little bit. So um, I might have the guy hop on the ground. He's going to do some fire hydrants. He might get up and uh, do what we call gates, which is a nice hip exercise. Uh, the guys are pretty much, you know, swinging their legs open and closed to get their hips going. Um, they're doing, you know, some sort of upper back work to really activate the upper back muscles, you know, a YWT, anything of that nature. You want to activate, wake it up, get it going. Um, after we get that done, we want to make sure, like we said, we talked about the core in the beginning core is the, you know, the key to all movement. And, uh, we really want to do a, a good job of waking up the core and making sure it's ready to go. So before I get into any type of movements, you know, at the end of the warm up or into my lift or my, my training session or my, you know, if I'm hitting whatever I'm doing, the core needs to be ready to go because the core, like I said, is going to stabilize the spine while the rest of your body parts are moving. So here's the phase of the warm-up where, you know, I might have the guys drop down and, and give you a 30-second plank, um, do a, a lighter loaded carry variation. Um, they can do a power press, whatever you have access to. Just get your core fired up and ready to go so that, you know, it can assist you in the rest of your movement. So once you get that done, like I said, movements, now we're going to proceed to doing either general movements, if I'm having a guy, you know, for a training session, you know, squats, push-ups, et cetera, or more general specific movements. So what I mean by that is, you know, um, going into a baseball game or, or going to hit or going to pitch or whatever, I might have a guy do a, you know, a squat or a split squat or a lunge, you know, single leg movement. Um, we may add a rotation into our lunge, whatever it is, um, you know, trying to gear them more towards the type of movements going to be performing uh, in their in their session or their activity. Once we get that done, simple. Wake up the nervous system. Get the body going, engage, right? So a jump, a sprint, or a throw. Those are your best bets. You're, got, you're about to have a guy do a 60, right? If that nervous system isn't fired up, you're going to get nowhere near the max, max score that you could possibly get. So what we're looking to do at this point now is, you know, wake it up, get them going a little bit, have them, you know, do a couple squat jumps, um, have them do some sprints to build up and, and, you know, get to that max 100% sprint where they're fired up and ready to go. And that basically that template right there is what's going to bring you to um, be ready to go for whatever you're doing. So the, the key things to remember, blood flow before you mobilize, you don't want to warm up cold muscles, um, always activate the core, and really try to, you know, use movements that are going to be conducive to what you're doing that day or for that activity, and then always get your nervous system going. So that's like my, my template there. Wow, that was awesome explanation right there. Very thorough. Um, definitely way, way more uh, into warming up than just doing some few arm circles. <laughs> I mean... That was pretty. That was pretty awesome. Uh, awesome stuff right there. Really appreciate you coming on the show today. Um, for those interested, make sure to give you a follow at Challenger underscore St on Twitter, ChallengerStrength.com/slash/blog. Um, I was looking at your blog the other night. Uh, great stuff on there as well. So make sure you go check that out. But thank again, you. really appreciate you coming on today. Oh, thank you for having me. It was uh, it was great to talk and uh, you know go over some of this stuff. I really appreciate it. Thank you.